0: Thanks for listening to This Blew Up. If you're enjoying our show, you might also like some of The Ringer's other narrative podcasts, like 22 Goals, a history of the Men's World Cup told through the lens of 22 of the most memorable goals ever scored in the tournament. Part Modern History Lesson, part Personal Essay, and part Sports Euphoria, a full-service podcast. Or, if you can't get enough of my voice, check out Boom Bust HQ Trivia. You'll hear me investigate the rise and fall of the ultra-viral trivia app HQ Trivia, and learn a few things about our attention economy along the way. We like making shows for you here at The Ringer, and we like you. Thanks for listening.
1: Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.
2: This episode is brought to you by eBay Authenticity Guarantee. You'll know real when you get it.
0: Daisy Keach, the face of Clubhouse, left in August of 2020. And many of her housemates soon followed in her wake, all but emptying the Beverly Hills content house of its initial lineup of influencers. Kevin Zenny, the house videographer, was part of that exodus too. He was as disillusioned as the others.
3: They were just trying to do it so quick, put it up so quick, and like they didn't really have like a foundation, like the right people
2: working and managing.
0: But CEO Amir Ben-Yohanan had designs beyond just one set of internet personalities, camera guys, or even a single property. He wanted to open more content houses in the US and abroad, build up their in-house management agency, produce reality TV shows, and launch a line of merch. And he wanted to take this whole operation public on the stock market under the name of a company called Clubhouse Media Group. At least that's what my sources told me. I've reached out to Amir several times, but he hasn't responded. Anyway, the hope was that the company's social media presence would grow its base of shareholders and make everyone a ton of money.
4: At the time, the pandemic had just started. Lockdowns had just started. And there was ultimately a lot of buzz around social media, around the content houses.
0: That's Chris Young. He's the guy who was once Daisy's manager, but stayed on as Amir's business partner at Clubhouse after her exit. Early on, he introduced Amir to another businessman named Simon Yu. Who had experience taking companies public? Simon ended up joining the company's board of directors.
4: So Simon felt that in a publicly traded company, one of the most important things is visibility for that company, letting shareholders know that you exist and what you do. So he felt that there was a natural nexus between having a publicly traded company and uh, having influencers, because there is a natural, there's this natural built-in marketing already that people would understand and and look for our company and look for our stock. So we made the decision to go public.
0: The initial idea was that creators who joined the collective would also have the opportunity to be shareholders.
4: Every influencer that lived at the houses would have some vesting and ownership of stock within the company the longer they lived there and the more deliverables they had.
0: This would establish a neat little pyramid of incentive. On the influencer level, it would encourage the social media famous to join Clubhouse, maintain a sense of investment in its overall success, and make content for the organization long-term. And one level below that, fans would support the internet celebrities they worshipped, not just by buying their merch or watching their videos, but by purchasing stock connected to the content house where they lived. That set of passionate retail investors, at least the ones who were old enough to figure out how the Robinhood app worked, would bolster the company's biggest shareholders at the top. The promise of equity became a popular talking point in recruiting and retaining both its contractors and creators. Leslie Golden, Kevin Zenny, and other workers told me Amir suggested they would receive equity. Chase Swerneman, the head of talent, said that he was promised $100,000 worth of shares. It all sounded very utopian. Also, extremely theoretical. As a guy who was in charge of managing all the influencers, Chase had a bad feeling about hooking up a spigot of famous teens to the stock market.
3: Whenever I heard about all of that, it worried me. It worried me a lot. And him going public, I I wanted to pack my bags and run as far as possible.
0: As for Amir's attitude about this next step, I'm told this was a huge priority for him. Amir himself offered some insight into how he thought about the content house scene in a June 2021 Harper's Magazine article. He said it, quote, almost reminds me of the old days in the US when people got on their horses and buggies and went west for the gold rush. And everything was uncharted territory. And they got to California and Colorado and they marked their territories and said, this is mine. And they started digging. And some of them made a lot of money and some of them didn't succeed and it was totally unregulated, end quote. While his peers and employees were panning for gold in rivers and streams, jumping from one shimmering flake to the next, he was building a whole mining operation, something he could scale. I'm Melissa Bereznak, and from Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, you're listening to This Blew Up. So what exactly was the business that Amir wanted to take public? At this point in spring of 2020, his content house operation was about three months old. He'd invested in equipment and staff, secured a headquarters that doubled as a studio and a living space for the talent, and was moving quickly to launch new sister locations. According to Chase, the company's main source of income was sponsored content, whether that came from a record label that wanted to promote a new song or a fast fashion company looking to advertise its latest crop tops.
3: Initially, There wasn't a lot of income being made. It was just a bunch of money going out to kind of get everything going. And then later on, brand deals were the main source of that company's fund.
0: This stuff is changing all the time across platforms and demographics. But typically, if a creator's followings are in the millions on multiple platforms and their fans are really engaged to boot, they can charge anywhere from a few thousand to a few hundred thousand dollars for a campaign. That might mean a one-off assignment where they use a certain sound on TikTok. Or it could be a multi-post product promotion across places like Instagram and YouTube. The numbers get bigger when the sponsorship enlists the participation of a whole group. One Content House competitor was charging up to 250K per deal. One of the first steps for a new Clubhouse recruit would be to negotiate a contract. The terms of which vary depending on the size of a creator's following and the business they could bring in. According to the company's Securities and Exchange Commission filings from early 2021, it preferred to sign exclusive agreements with influencers through its in-house management shop. Under these contracts, Clubhouse Media Group generally took between 10% and 50% of an influencer's gross income for all opportunities it brought to them. And actually, even if a deal came along without the company's help, these agreements said the company could still take a part of what the influencer earned from it. So you can see how signing a creator exclusively would make a lot more money compared to if it was simply housing a bunch of free agents. Chase Beardman told me that typically the company's rate was 20% and that the 50% rate was for so-called developmental creators, fresh-faced entertainers who would be invited to live with the company's more well-known names. Because this would theoretically help them launch their career, Clubhouse would take a larger percentage of the income they brought in. One contract I reviewed for an influencer named Hannah Koplo took 50%. Hannah confirmed to me that this was her rate and said she thought it was fair given she was moving from Ohio at the time. For reference, industry standard ranges from 10 to 20%. All of this was on top of the deliverables the creators were required to post to the company's house social accounts, which were meant to cover their rent and living expenses.
3: With that, the brand deals for the house accounts they got very big as well, just because of the the following and the views were over millions, you know, each time. And brands would start paying very big money, you know, for the creators to do it on that account. He wouldn't give any portion of that brand deal to the creator. So anytime a deal was done on the house accounts, the company was taking a hundred percent of that.
0: There were efforts to make money beyond the brand sponsorships. Clubhouse creators were also posting and streaming on YouTube, the only social media company at the time that paid creators a portion of money it makes from ad revenue. Since then, TikTok has launched its own version of that system. But the content house hadn't amassed enough views or subscribers to rake in a consistent paycheck there. There were also plans to sell merchandise under a label called, I kid you not, Rich Wife. But it took a while for Clubhouse Media Group to launch that line. And when it did, SEC filing said it made a, quote, minimal amount of revenue. I know there's an assumption that as soon as you become an influencer, you're automatically rich. Yes, your lifestyle might be elevated from the outside looking in, but unless you're one of those rare, ultra-viral breakout stars, building all these revenue streams into a stable living wage can be an uphill battle. And I'd argue that process was challenging in a different way for a company like Clubhouse Media Group, which wasn't owned and run by an internet personality, but a decidedly unfamous businessman. Remember, the rent for Clubhouse's Beverly Hills property alone was $42,000 per month. And that was on top of other costs for their new locations, equipment, staff salaries, food, and shoe props. Amir was technically the only full-time employee. The rest of the outfit was made up of around 40 young creators, photographers, videographers, managers, coordinators, assistants, and cleaning staff, some of whom lived where they worked. There was no healthcare coverage or 401ks. Amir was paying his camera guy, Kevin, under the table, for God's sake. Chase said that a few months in, the company wasn't breaking even, let alone making a profit.
3: He definitely made a a big investment, and then he wanted that money back. And it, it wasn't coming back as quick as he wanted it.
0: SEC reports confirm that between January 2nd and June 30th in 2020, the company that ran Clubhouse experienced a net loss of over $900,000. Those filings also indicate that its content houses were not viable businesses in and of themselves, but recruitment tools. Going so far as to say, quote, while we do not generate revenue directly from the clubhouses, the clubhouses enable us to attract quality, popular, talented influencers in the social media industry which we consider to be our primary asset." End quote. To translate, their content houses were marketing outfits for the rest of the company, which was actually supposed to be a talent management agency, a digital studio, and an incubator for other startups. Meaning that if you were a young creator who saw the enviable lifestyles of Clubhouse influencers, and you were drawn to living at one of the company's properties, The company would then send you down a convenient little conveyor belt, asking you to sign with this agency, star in its productions, and advertise its products in other companies. In that same Harper story I mentioned earlier, Amir suggested that someday major businesses would all have these kinds of collectives as promotional branches for whatever they were selling. But because Clubhouse Media Group wasn't selling much of anything, it was made up of hype and hype only. It wasn't what you'd want to see if you were a savvy investor thinking about sinking millions into a company. But by going public, Clubhouse Media Group didn't have to rely on only a few people to invest a lot. Just the opposite. They'd have to convince the masses to buy a few shares each. And that's where hype comes in handy. As Chris Young saw it, by going public, the company was just capitalizing on that hype. On the automatic publicity that their social media presence afforded them.
4: The hope was that the company would actually have a base of shareholders that believed in it because social media was very popular at the time.
0: This way, Clubhouse Media Group could receive investment funds directly from the fans who worshipped their creators. Sure, maybe those fans were young and didn't have a ton of money to invest. And yes, SEC regulations prevented the company's influencers from going on social media and explicitly saying, buy this stock. But creators would at least bring Clubhouse Media Group a certain brand name recognition no matter how unsound the operation. Hearing about the setup, you might be thinking, um, what? The bar is low these days, but this is simply not the type of operation you'd think would be valuable enough to trade upon. And that's because when most of us think of publicly traded companies, we think of the Microsofts and the Metas, the type of corporations who've gone public the traditional way via an initial public offering. An IPO usually requires a company hiring a bunch of accountants and lawyers to put together a long report on the state of the business in question. Lots of institutions are involved in vetting it, including the SEC. At the same time, the company is partnering with investment banks to support this big effort. Benjamin Edwards, an associate professor who specializes in securities law at University of Nevada, explained the process to me.
1: They sort of throw in with you, and the deal is that they're gonna give you this big, bucket of cash in exchange for a lot of your shares. They'll then turn around and sell those shares to the public. Before they do that, they do a lot of due diligence on the company. So they'll, they'll look at the files, they'll examine the operations, they'll make sure everything uh, is accurately disclosed as best they can, because they'll also have liability as an underwriter with that initial public offering.
0: This process is an exercise in patience a balm against embellishment. It weeds out the WeWorks. Amir and the rest of Clubhouse's company board chose to forego that route, opting for something a bit more expedited, a reverse merger. A reverse merger is where a private business merges with a publicly traded company and skips the usual IPO hullabaloo. Often businesses will do this with a shell company.
1: Most of the time, companies like this that are available as, as merger or acquisition partners the thing of value they have is that they're listed as a public company. You know, the next question is, well, how much value do you have as a, the predecessor company? Are you really bringing to the table?
0: Usually the answer to that question is not a lot.
1: I wouldn't say that it's, it's necessarily guaranteed that you'll end up with a penny stock, but you probably will. So if the company is trading at a price below $5, you know, it's considered a penny stock.
0: And since these companies aren't working with those big investment banks, their books aren't being examined as closely.
1: With a deal like this, where you, you go public through this sort of process, you may not have an underwriter, you're not raising capital. Uh, so they're not going to be doing that same level of independent vetting that you would expect through an IPO.
0: Ultimately, that could make for an uncertain, or at the very least, fringe investment. Major stock exchanges like NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange won't even trade penny stocks.
1: That the price per share is low... Doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad company or that there's any fraud, but there's a lot more risk, generally speaking, with penny stocks.
0: Clubhouse Media Group was willing to pass that risk on to investors. The shell it found to take its business public was called Tanji Healthcare Group. Once upon a time, Tanji Healthcare Group was a 105-bed hospital in Nanning, China. According to SEC filings, it hadn't earned revenue in years. And as of March 2020, it had accumulated a deficit of over $1.1 million. In other words, its balance sheets were a mess. And in the past few years, it had fallen under the ownership of someone named Joseph Arcaro, who won securities law blog described as the shell king. I just want to pause real quick so we can soak in the profound absurdity of what I just told you. If you asked me to come up with a business entity that was the inverse of an LA content house, I'm not sure I could do any better than a moderately-sized medical institution 7,451 miles across the Pacific. Merging Tanji Healthcare Group as a means of taking Clubhouse public was like putting a cactus in an igloo. It was a kind of random nonsense you might see generated by an AI bot that had access to the entirety of the internet. But somehow, within the rules of the stock market, it worked. On May 29, 2020, through their respective companies, Joseph Arcaro made a deal with Amir Ben-Yohanan. Per SEC filings, Amir bought 30 million shares of Tanji Inc for $240,000. As a majority shareholder, Amir was installed as the company's CEO. Chris Young was made its president and secretary, and Simon Yu, who'd overseen the process, was made chief operating officer. In the end, the original idea for joint company ownership that Chris and Simon had thought up and that Amir had talked up to his contractors never materialized.
3: So many promises were made about the company going public. You know, everybody was supposed to have shares. Everyone was supposed to be a member of the company to where we all had a say in what happened.
0: Former head of talent, Chase Swerneman.
3: And that's not how it was. Um, I think on the paperwork for the public company was the three owners, Amir, Chris, and Simon.
0: Do the math on the reverse merger, and each share was worth about 0.8 cents. In other words, the company that ran Clubhouse was now a penny stock. You don't need to watch even a single episode of Billions to guess that conducting a reverse merger with a shell company to go public is an unusual, dare I say aggressive, move for such a young business. To me, it seemed like a big bet on Amir's part. Like he'd seen the vast modification of identity on the internet and rushed in to stake whatever claim he could, no matter how little he knew about TikTok. All bold penny stock ventures aside, Influencer SpawnCon was becoming a more powerful marketing tool every year. Between 2016 and 2021, its market size catapulted from $1.7 billion to $13.8 billion. At the core of that industry was the principle that If a social media personality's audience was dedicated enough, they could sell their followers pretty much whatever they wanted. Hey y'all, so this is a reminder that today is National Free Shipping Day. So what
5: better way to treat yourself on this day than to order some Addison Ray
0: fragrance?
5: I just came out with some thick fabric booty bands. If you wanna check that out, you guys can click the link in the description box below.
6: Jit lifestyle island boy. This is our faces. This is our official brand. If you come over here, this is our faces right here. If you don't want our faces, you get a regular black one.
0: Building a cult of personality has proven helpful on the stock market too. If twenty years ago the CEO of Ford Motors smoked a joint on the radio or suddenly announced he was going to set the price of his stock to four hundred and twenty dollars, in what appeared to be a ruse to amuse his partner that man would have been swiftly expelled from his post. But Elon Musk has done and said both of those things and so many more ridiculous stunts. And he remains the CEO of Tesla and SpaceX, and more recently, the CEO of Twitter, even if he did have to pay a $20 million fine to the SEC. You could even argue that those stunts earned him a legion of fans that has only made him and his companies more powerful. At the height of the crypto bonanza in early 2021, he was able to move the most internet-y corners of the stock market with a single tweet.
1: Catherine, you're starting off with the latest action in uh, cryptocurrency. What's moving markets there?
0: Well, the question is not really what's moving markets, but who's moving them. And the answer to that, of course, is Elon Musk, unsurprisingly. Crypto markets are at this stage more or less pinned to what he says. I should say, Musk is able to get away with all of this because his wealth and influence is rooted in a tangible product, electric cars. But he's proven to other entrepreneurs and celebrities that relying on hype and FOMO can be an effective way to get young investors to buy into otherwise dubious web 3.0 ventures built upon cryptocurrency or NFTs. And like their boomer celebrity predecessors, influencers have become a common part of the equation to market risky financial products to the masses.
6: What's up, everyone, and welcome
0: to another episode of Chantel's Money Moves. I'm beyond excited about this topic. Can you guess what it is? I'll give you a hint. Bitcoin, Doge, Ethereum. Of course, it's crypto. What is it? Who makes it? And how do we get in on the action? Over the past few years, social media stars have done con deals that hype up crypto and NFTs to their massive, and typically much younger, followings. Online personalities like Jake Paul and Keemstar have promoted something called SafeMoon, a cryptocurrency that went viral on social media and then plummeted in value. Since then, three separate investor groups have filed class action lawsuits against the company behind the coin and the celebrities who promoted it, claiming it's a pump and dump scheme. Even the queen influencer herself, Kim Kardashian, has promoted these alternative currencies. In June of 2021, she was paid $250,000 for an Instagram story advertising a coin called Ethereum Max. It began with a question, are you guys into crypto? And ended with hashtag disrupt history, hashtag ad. A month later, the coin flatlined. In October of this year, Kardashian paid a $1.6 million settlement to the SEC because she hadn't disclosed she'd been paid for the post.
1: You know, social media has a a very significant impact on how lots and lots of people invest.
0: Associate Law Professor Benjamin Edwards.
1: As someone who teaches securities law, I have looked through TikTok uh, and some of these other platforms and seen uh, some of the investing content that people are putting out there. And I would expect the SEC needs to turn its eye to what's happening on these platforms. There is an enormous amount of fraud.
0: When it comes to hyping up a new business venture versus committing securities fraud, the line is drawn at providing false, inaccurate, or materially misleading information to the public. But in true American tradition, there are plenty of companies, especially penny stocks, that dance on that line.
1: There is this doctrine called puffery. So statements that have no real factual meaning, like this is a fabulous company, this is a wonderful company, Uh, really a tremendous, tremendous company, Uh, just think about the sorts of random positive things the former president would say.
0: Professor Edwards explained it's hard to show that puffery is, in fact, false. How do you prove a company isn't fabulous?
1: And so if they're just positive words, you're not going to have liability for that
0: there may be no population more skilled at puffery than influencers. So by taking Clubhouse public, Amir was streamlining a lot of the investment trends that the internet encouraged, all under one roof. He had the creator economy, a market of public personalities whose value was determined by opaque algorithms, constantly shifting metrics and hype. And he had Wall Street, a financial system with its own volatile way of picking winners and losers. And with this financial experiment, He'd mix them together to see whether the result would produce a nice profit. To help this experiment along, Amir needed fresh talent. At the start of August 2020, he began to assemble an even younger group of influencers for a new content house, teens who'd built loyal followings on TikTok. Lauren Kettering, that creator we heard from in episode two, was one of them. She recalls tagging along with an influencer friend to meet Amir and discuss a potential girl group. The meeting was mainly like
5: who we wanted in the house. He was just asking us like, who do you guys think that would be a great fit? And he was bringing up girls and we mentioned our friends and I don't remember how it really
0: came all together, but then all of a sudden we were in the house. (laughs) They signed some contracts and settled on the ironic name, not a content house. There was no discussion of equity at this point. Lauren says she wasn't even aware the company was in the process of going public.
5: I don't know much about stocks or that business, but I just remember hearing from the girls. Like, oh, someone was like, did you know, like, we were sold to, like, a hospital or something like that? And I was like, what? And we were kind of just, like, as girls, like, why are four girls, like, uh, sold as a business to a hospital? Like, what does a hospital have to do with, like, a social media girls group?
0: They were about to find out.
1: Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.
2: This episode is brought to you by eBay Authenticity Guarantee. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that street wear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.
0: This episode is brought to you by Maybelline New York. Get ready to bring the heat with Maybelline's newest lip plumping gloss, Lifter Plump. Fair warning, though, it's hot. Like, literally. It's formulated with chili peppers to bring a heated sensation and an instant plumping effect that lasts. Available in eight sizzling shades, like Blush Blaze, Hot Honey, and more. Buy Lifter Plump now on Amazon and use the code 10PLUMP to get 10% off for a limited time. Tap the banner to learn more. Once Clubhouse went public, I had a lot of material to parse from positive press releases and official public filings, to glamorous snapshots and dance videos that advertised the company on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube. And I was trying to square all of that with the experiences of my sources, who had been on the ground living and working there. As I compared notes, two realities took shape. Take this new property that Amir was launching. It was called Not a Content House, or Notch for short, and it featured influencers ages 16 to 20. In an August 2020 press release, the company described its network of properties as, quote, picturesque living environments where influencers could grow while, quote, having fun and just being themselves. And if you'd looked up the members of Notch on social media, you'd think that was pretty much right. They were posting and collaborating at a pretty new property. Blogs were writing about the house's debut, and they became frequent subjects of tea accounts on TikTok and Instagram. These girls really were scaling their audiences and advancing their careers. But when I spoke to Lauren Kettering and her parents about her time in this house, a whole new layer of dysfunction revealed itself. Quick background here. The Ketterings got involved in the creator world after Lauren, a lifelong dancer, went viral on TikTok her sophomore year. Her parents were involved from the beginning, keeping a close watch on her account and her meetups with other creators going so far as to drive her to content house parties in L.A., park nearby, and wait. And we would drive by the house. Yvette Kettering, Lauren's mom. This is probably embarrassing. We probably shouldn't talk about this, but just to see, like, is it safe? Is there anybody weird going Eventually, Lauren started getting offers from brand deals, and that's when her parents knew they were out of their depth. They got her a manager, signed with an agency, and her career as an influencer began in earnest. Then, in the summer of 2020, almost a year into this whole wild ride, Lauren came to them with a big ask. Another teen TikToker was forming a collective called Not a Content House. She said it was an offshoot of Clubhouse and asked Lauren to be a part of it. Brian Kettering, Lauren's dad.
7: And we're like, oh, okay, so they're going to put it together. And we didn't know who these people were.
0: Not many regular people did, actually. Aside from coverage of parties that flouted COVID rules at its flagship location, the internal dysfunction at Clubhouse had flown under the radar of most major news outlets. Given that the opportunity came through a friend, the Ketterings were open to the idea. They agreed to meet with Amir.
7: So we made a trip down to Beverly Hills, and we were invited to Amir's house to talk about, you know, the opportunity. The conversation was very generic. It was, yeah, we're basically putting this house together. We're going to expect the girls to deliver on deliverables on the house, but it'll be rent paid. and, And I said, okay, that's cool.
0: But the situation quickly devolved. The red flags began, as many suspect living situations do, with the utilities. Early on, the power was suddenly shut off. Chase Wernemann, who was supervising the influencers, recalls the issue.
3: The whole entire um, electricity was off for like two days, and the girls were in the house with no electricity for two days straight.
0: Meaning Lauren and her housemates were stuck with no air conditioning in the sweltering summer heat. And it was super hot in her house, and we didn't have anything, and— This is August in LA. (laughs) Yeah. It's tough. It was annoying, but eventually they got it back.
5: And then one day, we're just like, we're all getting ready, like, in our room. I remember Lee coming to my room, and he was like, Lauren, like,
0: come out here. Lauren's talking about their house videographer, Lee John Godoy. She said he was getting her attention because a bunch of dudes with guns had barged in through their front door, yelling at them to move out. And I just see these like four like huge
5: men with like bandanas over their faces and basically just saying like, get your shit or we're gonna throw your shit out ourselves. Like blah, blah, I had one guy specifically come in my room and
0: start putting all my clothes in a trash bag because I wasn't doing it. Warren says one house member was so afraid that she just ran out of the house and down the street. Others picked up their phones and started calling people for help.
3: I got a call from one of the girls that there were a bunch of guys with guns in the house, trying to get them to leave, putting their stuff in trash bags and throwing it on the side of the road. I, I, I think I was in like Culver City, and I got to Beverly Hills in like 15 minutes because I was like, oh no, I was like, I am scared.
0: Lauren got a hold of her dad, Brian, who then called house management.
7: I'm like, hey, you know, what, pardon my language. No. I said, what the hell's going on? What are you guys doing? I said, you guys better get a handle on this because now I'm coming down there, and I'm calling the police.
0: Brian then called the cops.
7: So I called the police and I said, you know, there's a situation going at the house. Here's the address. I need somebody there right now.
0: He hightails it to the property and arrives to see commotion out on the front lawn.
7: All the management was there. All of our kids were there. There's a bunch of other influences there because they were all the stuff was thrown out, literally out in the streets. It's, you know, one of those scenarios, I guess, where I guess and people are squatting, you know, they hire these squads to come in and remove squatters from houses. <laughs> And they were yelling back and forth. And I went to the police officer and I said, look, I'm a father. I'm the father of one of the girls that was torn out. Where are we at? What are we doing? And he goes, well, that's the guy who owns the property. And he pointed to this gentleman. This is the manager that's managing the property. I go, yeah, I know who he was. And and that was Amir.
0: Chris Young was also there. He and Amir were trying to sort out what was happening. Based on what he said Amir told him, it had something to do with the short-term rental of the property.
4: There's some issue with the fact that the house should not have been on Airbnb because the person who's doing it didn't have standing to do so. And so that, that was my understanding as to, as to why there was um, an incident in the
0: house. But really, everyone was unclear what exactly the dispute was over. Unpaid rent? Unauthorized filming in the house? Parties? Chase simply remembers that Amir was ballistic.
3: I've never heard someone scream as loud as he was. He he was going off on those guys. And so it's landlord over here, police over here, and then Amir. And the police were getting ready to stop Amir in case he tried to go and, you know, strangle this landlord or whatever. And it was a bad situation.
0: He also recalls the House members being really shaken by the whole incident.
3: Those girls were so sweet. And it was almost like, little sisters in a way because they were just so like sweet and bubbly and just like you would do anything to protect them. And it's like if something was to happen and guys with guns come in the house and that would freak me out too. And, and they mentally, I think that impacted a lot of those girls um, just from being in that situation.
0: Not to mention the whole incident left the Ketterings concerned for Lauren's safety. But Brian says his daughter was really level-headed about it.
7: The whole thing, surprisingly, she was so calm and not calm, but she was scared, but she was at the same time handling it professionally. And I thought, wow, okay, you know, my daughter's dealing with this pretty well. I was pretty, I was pretty
0: upset. After the dust had settled, Brian Kettering said Amir assured him it was all just a misunderstanding.
7: Amir said, Don't worry, Brian, we're gonna have this under control. We're going to, you know, move the girls to a different facility, and then we're getting them in a different spot. This is just on the wrong direction and wouldn't get out.
0: Amir put the girls up at the Beverly Hilton while he sorted things out. He then relocated them to another property just a few minutes away from a steakhouse called Boa, a Gen hotspot. When Lauren and her fellow influencer friends moved in, he added extra levels of security and asked Chase to move in full time.
7: With all that happening, the, our biggest concern now is our daughter's safety, right? So they had hired a security guard to be there at night which we were cool with. Had the house manager there more often, which was just which was great. And the girls seemed a little bit more secure in the new house at the room was a lot more secure than the were, in. like more off the street. You know what I mean? It was a fortress to get into. And so we just felt like that was enough to let Lauren continue to keep staying. There.
0: Look, if I were in the situation, this is about the time I'd say, okay, we're out. But the Ketterings were just so new to this. They may have known their way around the politics of a PTA meeting or a dance competition, but LA media operations are a whole nother beast. Warren still saw this as a valuable opportunity, and her parents didn't want to get in the way of her dreams. Little did they know that all this chaos when it came to securing a place was due to the fact that it wasn't exactly easy to find properties that would house influencers, with all the parties and potential property damage they were known for. Under Amir's directive, Chase Werneman's job was to keep their content house operation under the radar. And that meant, on move-in day at their new house, eliminating evidence that the Notch members would be living there altogether.
5: When we first got there, it was like, I remember Chase texting us, like, don't pull in your cars yet. Like, don't come in front of the house. Like, just like first day moving in, we can't even go in our own driveway. (laughs) Like, and it was like, turn off your lights.
3: There were cameras across that entire house. Like, every direction that you went, there was a camera other other than the bedrooms, thank God. But me personally, I had to park down the road, um, go up to the house, find the, uh, what is it called? The DVR that stored everything and ran the camera system and unplug it. And then when I did that, I texted everybody and I was like, okay, coast is clear. You guys can come in. And then they all moved their stuff in. I literally had to go shut off the camera so the landlord couldn't go back and look at the footage and you know see all the people in the house.
0: Chase said this was par for the course for several of their houses at the time. An SEC filings confirmed that Amir, not the influencers who worked for the company, was listed as a tenant on the leases of two main clubhouse properties, the flagship property in Beverly Hills and not a content house.
3: The only house that the landlord knew about was Clubhouse BH. Other than that, he would just tell the landlords that he was living there with his family. So, you know, if they were to come by and see... 10 kids there and all the content and everything going on, it wouldn't have worked out the way that it
0: did. The -the under-the-table nature of this whole housing setup gave way to a lot of weird boundary crossing. Chris Young told me that Amir was very hands-on in managing these young influencers.
4: Amir also acted on his own accord many times uh, and without consultation, so it was quite tough. Um, And Simon and I and Harris and pretty much every board member had suggested that He'd become more hands-off, but he would directly communicate with them via text.
0: When Chris says Harris, he's referring to Harris Tolchin, another board member who was added later on. According to both Lauren and the text from the house group chat I've reviewed, Amir referred to her and her housemates as baddies. In that same group chat, he referred to a talent coordinator who worked with the creators as forbidden fruit. He also fixated on the influencers' romantic relationships. Another contractor named George Gomez said Amir once cracked a joke to him about the sexuality of one 17 year old named Anna Shoemate.
3: One time we were talking, we were out there at another content house and then like Anna like turned around, walked away and he was like, Do you think Anna likes to fuck all the girls?
0: Lauren says Amir brought up her ex-boyfriend a lot. I think that in
5: the moment we all kinda of were confused for sure. Like I didn't know if it was his way of trying to like bond with us. Like I didn't I definitely didn't find it entertaining or funny. Um but I also didn't say anything myself. So that could be on my side. I never said I think it was too scared to say I felt uncomfortable. So sometimes we'd go along with it like right, like haha or like oh my gosh, Amir, but doesn't mean that we um or me for personally I liked it at all.
0: Adding to the weight of this experience was the fact that the company itself was now publicly traded, which made it even more motivated to report rapid growth. Lauren and her housemates were only vaguely aware that this was happening in the background. But according to Chase, it added yet another layer of pressure and work for the creators.
3: It affected it in every single aspect of that company because they needed to show in their financial records that the company was profitable, that they were making money, And that's whenever things started intensifying like hell. When it came to those house deals, it was like, okay, if we can do five to 10 house deals a week and make a hundred grand a week, then, you know, we're making $4 million a year. And then that's going to run our stock up.
0: Even if the Notch members didn't quite understand the full implications of working for a penny stock company, they were certainly feeling overwhelmed by their responsibilities. Lauren had switched to independent study and had stopped regularly attending dance classes at her studio she and the others were having trouble communicating their concerns with Amir. They'd come to meetings explaining they were stressed out about schoolwork or asking for time off to visit their families. But the pressure to perform never seemed to ease. Nor Coder, another young male manager who would eventually move in with them, recalls a meeting where Amir brushed off these complaints.
3: We were all sitting around a table and I think that everyone was pretty frustrated and he he basically said that the reason that everyone was acting so emotional was because they were on their periods. I feel like at the moment, it didn't sink in. And then after the fact, it was like, wow, did he really say that?
0: At one point, Lauren reached out to Amir with a simple request to switch rooms for more space and privacy. It didn't go well. When I did, I get a message back that's like, so you're being ungrateful.
5: The $40,000 month per, like, for the house is not good enough
0: for you and the mansion you live in. Nora recalls Lauren FaceTiming him after that discussion.
3: Her exact words, I feel like, remembering it were, I don't deserve to get treated this way. And I was like, look, I'm right there with you. And you know, it kind of came up to the point where I was like, look, we're, we're fed up, this is supposed to be something that's fun for us and it's not anymore. So kind of went that way.
0: Yes, Lauren was living in a mansion, but it was also a deeply alienating environment. No matter the strength of her support system, no matter what her manager had negotiated in her contract, she was still very much a kid and had a hard time speaking up for herself. So she withdrew in a uniquely influencer-y way.
5: I just never felt at home. There was one month I ordered $5,000 in Uber Eats alone.
0: Yeah, five grand on delivery. I know, not the most relatable detail. But that doesn't mean Lauren wasn't having a hard time.
5: I would not cook there because it just felt like everything was really dirty. Like we had a cleaning guy, but things weren't really ever cleaned. Um, I just stayed in my room like, I started just losing the fun out of it and I was like, I just realized I didn't want to be there, basically.
0: Finally, around January twenty twenty one, she reached her breaking point and called up Amir. I was planning
5: to meet him in, in person and say that I didn't want to be there. But my mom was right next to me. He was on speaker. I ended up just telling him on the phone because I just didn't want to go back there. And I was like, here's just my issues. I feel like sometimes like, you know, you hold it against me that I have to go to dance. And my mom was right there. He just started Yelling at me, that is like not true, like this and that. Like, I don't even remember
0: what he was saying, but it wasn't pleasant. Just a reminder here that at the time, Amir was 47. Lauren was 17. Her mother, Yvette, remembers the call.
5: Uh, He just wasn't really listening. He was just like, well, Lauren, you do whatever you want. That's fine. That's fine. You want to leave? Go." And she was trying to share her feelings with him. Like kind of maybe there could be a resolution possibly, and um, we were in her room, and yeah, he just kind of talked over her. Yeah. yeah, so that's kind of what I mean by, like, in the meetings, how it was. It was just like, I couldn't talk anyways. So it got to the point, I was like, all right, Amir, like, obviously, anything I say, you want to, you know, talk over me or have your own side about it and devalue whatever I'm feeling. So I was like, I'm just going to say it, and that's it, I'm leaving
0: the house. And then he was like, okay, fine. And then that was it. That was the end of the call. This was a familiar cycle for Amir. And yet… Despite his issues with housing, his inappropriate behavior, and the fact that the company continued to hemorrhage influencers, a different narrative had caught hold on the stock market. That fall, the share price for the company that ran both Clubhouse BH and Not A Content House had been going up little by little, hovering between one and $7 a share. Remember, the price for a single share of Clubhouse company stock after its merger was around 0.8 cents. So even reaching a dollar meant the stock price grew 125%. The $240,000 investment Amir made to take his content house operation public had already yielded him a company that was worth tens of millions of dollars on paper. It turned out the marketing power of the influencers he was housing had managed to reach a slice of the public and convinced them the company was worth something. Actually, one of those investors, a paralegal named Caitlin Marta-Carena, told me she'd learned about the operation after some of its influencers ended up on her TikTok feed. She was proof that the clout-driven momentum Amir had hoped for was building, slowly but surely. It helped that on January 20th, 2021, the company officially changed its corporate name from Tanji Healthcare Group to Clubhouse Media Group, and it got a new stock ticker symbol, CMGR. Within a few days, its stock was trading at a little over $8 a share. By the way, I should mention that around this time, something extraordinary was happening on the stock market. Tonight, the SEC says that it is actively monitoring market volatility after certain stocks like GameStop, have been soaring, fueled by amateur day traders. A new generation of investors using their phones and communicating on Reddit are creating chaos on Wall Street and also exposing potential flaws in our financial system. Rebecca Jarvis- This can- was a huge story. I'm guessing you've heard a version of it. But let me just give you a quick recap. In mid-January, the stock price for the video game retailer, GameStop, began to surge for no immediate discernible reason. The company was struggling to adapt to the digital era, and a few hedge funds had bet against, or shorted, the company. This also happened to be a weird time in society. A lot of people who were lucky enough to keep their jobs during the pandemic were saving money and funneling it into the stock market. Jim Cramer was all over it on his cable program, Mad Money.
1: Now, there's a forum I've mentioned before, Wall Street Bets. It's on Reddit. Now, a lot of younger people read Reddit. I read Reddit because younger people read it. That's why. Now, they've got a community of very rabid investors who will choose individual stocks and then run them up as a group with commentary about how much they love them.
0: In late 2020, Wall Street Bets rallied to push GameStop's price up with the aim of profiting off the hedge funds who had bet it would fail. To everyone's surprise, it worked. GameStop shares surged about 1,700% from December to late January 2021. The media jumped on the story. Elon Musk tweeted out the link to the Wall Street Bets page, and its membership doubled. All these stories about average Joes making millions of dollars off a Reddit-orchestrated short squeeze left a lot of other day traders sniffing around for more potential meme stocks. And many of them directed their noses toward Elon Musk's Twitter feed. So all of that was on the minds of his followers when, On January 31st, Musk fired off a simple tweet. On Clubhouse tonight at 10 p.m. LA time. Musk wasn't referring to Amir Ben-Yohanan's company, Clubhouse Media Group. He was talking about a different hyped-up business, an audio-based social media app with almost the exact same name. Clubhouse, the app, had added a bunch of new users during the pandemic and become a bit of a Silicon Valley darling, which was drawing tech bigwigs like Musk to host conversations on the platform. So speculators, who were already jacked up on the possibilities of this bonkers market, saw the word Clubhouse on Elon Musk's feed and rushed to scoop up the stock. But Clubhouse the audio app was still a privately held company. There are no stock ticker symbols for privately held companies. There's no stock available to retail investors, period. So the opportunists instead landed on Clubhouse Media Group. Maybe some of them were confused. Maybe some of them knew this wasn't the company Musk was talking about, but thought they could profit from buying the shares of it anyway. Whatever the case, the result was that Clubhouse Media Group's prices were climbing even faster. The day after Musk's tweet, a single share was trading for over $13 and going up, then down, then up again. Look, it's hard to make much sense of all of this because there's not much sense to make. Like a lot of penny stocks, Clubhouse Media Group was well-positioned to benefit from a combination of hype and a sudden influx of inexperienced investors, especially since that hype was presumably coming from a time-tested promotional tool, famous good-looking teenagers who'd sometimes break into dance. Those two things alone could have been enough to put an otherwise unknown stock on the radar of investors. But the fact that Elon Musk tweeted about a company with a similar name at the very height of a market bonanza and accidentally directed his millions of followers to this penny stock, that was lightning in a bottle. A crisp $100 bill discovered on the sidewalk, the pure randomized opportunity of the internet. Jeremy Dequeiros, that designer who lived and worked at Clubhouse's Beverly Hills Content House, remembers all this happening in real time and thinking, We missed
6: out. I saw it and I was like, oh my God, if you're an equity owner of a company like that, lots, lots and lots and lots of money.
0: As a side effect of its accidental stock surge, Clubhouse Media Group became the topic of several quick hit news stories, earning them a free round of publicity on top of their spiked share price. Technically, all of this was a fluke, a combination of coincidental search terms and dumb luck. But that was what made the worlds of penny stocks and influencers go round. And even though Jeremy no longer worked with Clubhouse, he couldn't help but imagine how things would have been if the original influencers and workers who'd started the company had been given a stake.
6: Imagine if we put our own hard-earned money, like me, you know, let's say at the time I probably had like five grand or something. Imagine if I put five grand in that stock when it was in the cents. And then in the span of maybe two months, it went to like 20 something dollars. Bruh. I would have so much money right now. We wouldn't even be here. I would be in Italy (laughs) having a vacation if I did that. Just so people understand what that's like. But we never got a taste of that, so. None of the
0: ex-employees and influencers I spoke to, both on the record or anonymously, had either. They'd helped build this suddenly valuable company, but had no stake to show for it. On the next episode of This Blew Up.
3: So we all went to Vegas. Party bus was lit.
5: Uh, Hey guys, you're about to watch the most real, real shit ever. Money, it just can get you a long way out here, especially in California. I never would have thought I'm getting sued at 17.
0: Thanks for listening to This Blew Up. If you're enjoying the pod, please, please, please take a moment to tell a friend about it. I don't even have close to the amount of followers as the influencers on this podcast. So your word of mouth is the most valuable promotional tool we've got. This Blew Up was written and reported by me, Alyssa Bereznak. Its executive producers are Juliet Littman and Sean Fennessy. Our story editors are Connor Nevins and Amanda Dobbins. The show was produced by me, Kaya McMullen, and Vikram Patel. Copy editing by Craig Gaines. Fact checking by Juliana Ress. Special thanks to Erica Cervantes, who helped with research in early production. The theme song and some of the other music tracks you heard in this episode were composed by Devin Rinaldo. Other music you heard in this episode is from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. Sound design by Kaya McMullen. Mixing and mastering by Scott Somerville. Art direction by David Shoemaker. Illustration by Alicia Tenoyan. Thanks for listening, guys. See you next time.
3: Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. This
4: episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most,